All right, everyone, back to back to full health. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. What is up? I am your host, Charlie Shrem, almost at episode 300 on this epic journey with me that we call Untold Stories. We're together twice a week, every week for the past three years. We've been uh, diving deep with some of crypto's most influential leaders, Bitcoin's truest OGs, those who really understand what's going on. And not only that, as Bitcoin and crypto has become like a tool uh, for free speech, that really the only tool that we have that we can really like control ourselves, it's not just about like freedom of information and freedom of money, but it really is free speech and everything that comes along with it. Um, we're getting to like meet those, those really bright thinkers, those who are part of the Austrian school, those who really like, understand the the cultural fabric that got us to where we are today. We've been doing that uh, to truly understand how this movement came to be, where we are right now, where we're going in the future. Um, and I'm really excited to have on the show today uh, someone I call a dear friend. We've known each other since, I don't know, Jeff, what, like 2013, uh, 13, I think, yeah. 2013, Jeffrey Tucker. Uh, famous. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Oh, sure. We got, Matt, can I ask when you said back to full health, what, what, uh, is it okay? Do you want to tell me? No, la yeah. Just last week I, I came down with like a flu or something. It wasn't COVID, mm. but I was just like, it was very hard to do the show. I came up and did one show, but everyone could tell that like, I didn't have a voice, but I didn't want to like, not, I, I have this, this like consistent three-year thing going right now. So yeah, like, yeah. I'm like the mailman, you know, rain, sleet, uh, I got to get it. got to get these shows done. The world never stops. Look what happened just yesterday with the, the Bitcoin and, and crypto and the whole, the, the great reset as everyone has been calling it. And it's like, you know, Biden inflation, people say one thing and then Russia inflation is another thing. But at the end of the day, you know why we're here. You know why the wealth gap is getting worse, why people are getting poorer, uh, why we've basically lost so many rights over the last three years with with COVID nineteen, like the government took advantage of that to to remove so many of of our freedoms, uh, um, and I'm really excited to kind of talk about that today. I just want to give everyone a little bit of background on you. You're an American economist, a writer uh, in the Austrian school, the the Mises Institute. Um, you're an advocate for anarcho-capitalism and Bitcoin. You're currently the, the, the founder and president of the Brownstone Institute. You're the author of many thousands of articles, books, scholarly papers, in, in press all over the world. I think you've written like 10 books in five languages, most recently, Liberty or Lockdown. You're also the editor of The Best of Mises, and you speak on topics like uh, economics, technology, social philosophy, and culture. Through my conversations with you over the last almost decade that we've known each other, you've helped me formulate my like love for Bitcoin and freedom into this like uh, school of thought. So really thank you for that. Oh, I'm sure. excited to have you back on the show. Well, it was fun. I remember the early days when we were hanging out. Uh, those were the early days of Bitcoin. And I, I, you were kind of responsible for convincing me. I had written, I think, about it in the, uh, the previously, but I didn't entirely understand it. And uh, you and others gathered to actually make me an owner. And I, I always think that that's the way you really learn about something is by really involving yourself in it really deeply. And that changed my life, you know, because I, that's when I went to print. I think it was, 
you know, maybe April of 2013 with my first big public article about the topic. And everybody said I had been <laughs> tricked by some sort of Ponzi scheme and that my, my credibility was shot and my reputation would be forever ruined and so on. I think back in those days, when I first read about Bitcoin, the price was, I don't know, maybe it was $15. And uh, then it went up to $30 and, and everybody started screaming. It was a bubble. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so on it went. But, um, you know, I think, you know, it's, it's helpful to actually look at, uh, go back and ask, why does Bitcoin exist? And really, it, it, it came out of Satoshi's long experience in looking at the sheer fragility of, of the financial and political and economic systems and, and, and hoping to create something that would, uh, stand apart from that, you know, be be a, a, a kind of a, a commodity that was imbued with an in, inherent uh, integrity, you know, um, that would actually become something like an asset for the for the digital age. But more importantly than that, it was it was really about giving average people a way to survive what 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 he believed would likely be an ongoing age of of crisis and chaos. And of course, it all it all came true with the two thousand eight financial crisis and following, uh, and that whole period, you know, got us on this current trajectory uh, towards living off um, monetary uh, creation and endless debt and ever larger government and ever more kept financial institutions. And now we're dealing with censorship and surveillance and. Um, just the, the catastrophe of the last two years. So I would say Satoshi was a, a real prophet. That's not to say that, that Bitcoin somehow solves every problem in the whole world, but at least it, it provides a, a safe haven of, of truth in an age of lies, a, an asset with integrity in a time when everything else is really coming into question. Everything is really coming into question. It seems like you have a bunch of people in a room making decisions on behalf of the whole world. It seems like the whole world now is we live and die by these like Federal Reserve minutes and when they're going to speak and what they're going to say and stock market knee-jerk reactions and how that trickles down. And, you know, my friend asked me yesterday, Charlie, are we going to see a recession? I say, you know, well, like, I think technically we may already be in one. And when they're talking about that, it's, it's the stock market. Yeah, that is totally for sure. I mean, we have been in, recession really for for the better part of two years and and it was papered over uh, very quickly i mean you think about those lockdowns that really began uh i think they began really they began when did they begin south by southwest was canceled on march 8th which i found by by itself just outrageous you just don't yeah government See, Patty's day which is march 6 i think yeah uh, yeah, you just don't go in and say, okay, you two, March 17th. 250,000 people who are going to gather together for this festival, you, 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 you don't have any rights to do that. eat your plane tickets, eat your hotel reservations, all your preparations, forget it. Uh, we're going to control a virus here, fat chance. Um, and, then, and then four days later, uh, we got the travel restrictions from Europe, which is, which is a shock because, you know, in my lifetime, there's never been a time when you couldn't, you know, go to Europe and back, you know, and suddenly you have... Uh, by presidential edict, this proclamation that you can't do that because that just spreads the virus, even though the virus is already here. So it's, it's, it's as, as early as the fall of 2019, as far as we know. And then the next day, the HHS, this is March 13th, HHS released their lockdown blueprint. 
which was all about domestic capacity restrictions, travel restrictions, stay-at-home orders, school closures, business closures, everything. It was all in that document. But Trump hadn't signed it yet. It took the weekend for, for Burks and Fauci and these other people and, and the great son-in-law, Kushner, to convince him. Yeah, the great son-in-law. And, and this, so then March 16th press conference happened where we got introduced to this new theory of life, which is that we should all stay separate from each other. <laughs> and, uh, and, and it just got worse. And the lockdowns yeah. were, were horrible, but, but I mean, just on their face, they were horrible. But it was also the sort of the fiscal and monetary response to the lockdowns that's creating all the present chaos. So on March 27th, we had the CARES Act, $1.7 trillion. There's no way lockdowns would have continued if that hadn't been passed. Mm. Suddenly, all the state governments and city governments and everybody was flushed with money. And they're like, hey, these lockdowns are kind of cool. <laughs> well, you know. Yeah, what, you're right. I never really thought of it like that. The lockdowns were just like the, the stimulus was a way to keep us locked down. Yeah. No, it was like paying the people who were locking you down to keep you locked down. I mean, otherwise, it would have just vanished in no time. You know, you can't live like this. But if the money is pouring in, you know, trillions of dollars pouring out of Washington to uh, to businesses, individuals and states and, and, and localities and so on, everybody's like, well, we can just stay locked down. And then, of course, very large tech companies started making money by, uh, you know, selling products you know, to deliver to your door and then Zoom. And so, so so a lot of people benefited from this. And so they just kept it going over the course of two years, the Federal Reserve as measured by um, M2, created about $6 trillion in new money, uh, which is exactly the the same amount that Congress allocated for spending for COVID relief. So it was a dollar for dollar um, money creation. And, you know, you think about it from the average point of view of the average person, you know, you got flush with cash during 2020 and then, and then 2021. And then you wake up uh, this year and you realize, oh, uh, they they gave it to us and then they took it away. And then everything know? went up in price. So they really didn't get anything at all. No, that's right. And now, <laughs> and now, Charlie, we're we're dealing with this weird squeeze that I was just looking at the numbers this morning. You've got uh, already high taxes. You've got a, a very high inflation, which according to real-time numbers is running about 11 or 12% um, in aggregate. And then you've got uh, falling financials, um, you know, in addition to everything else, political divisions and all sorts of things. But, but the problem is, you know, where, 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 where do you hide from this? You know, it's like the walls are closing down on everybody. And six months ago, people were saying, oh, this is temporary, this is temporary. But now it's starting to dawn on people, this is, this is real and this is lasting and it's not going anywhere and no one knows how to fix it. Um, I was trying to figure out, like, when was the last time we had really high inflation with falling financials to the point that that people literally there was no way not to lose money. Right. I mean, that's what we're dealing with here. Um, And as best I can tell, there was a brief period in the fall of 1974 where this was true, where we had uh, double digit inflation briefly combined with falling financials, at least according to the Dow that I looked at it and looked at the other indices. It was down I was just looking up the Bitcoin price during the first stimulus check. It was six thousand dollars, sixty six hundred. So so you're looking at Bitcoin even at thirty thousand dollars today. And if you look oh. at it, Bitcoin as like a direct way of like how people feel about future dollar purchasing power is kind of where I look at Bitcoin is today. It's like 
where do you see the, not purchasing power, like how strong the dollar is in a short-term basis, like the future purchasing. But for me, and I want to get it. Yeah. So like, exactly. You're right. Like we use that money to, they use the money to lock us down. But then if you had invested uh, your, your stimulus checks into Bitcoin, you'd have preserved your purchasing power. Not only your value would have gotten up, but you would have been protected against the inflation, which you could argue if you look at the cost of something in April of 2020 versus the same cost now, you're probably almost at parity versus the Bitcoin price of 6,600 versus where it is now at 30,000. I mean, look at the cost of airline tickets or anything really. It's just insane. I mean, costs are definitely relaxing now, but it's like- and, Well, and yeah. everybody's rethinking travel plans. I mean, it's actually so cruel. Finally, everything opens up. We've got countries that have got passports and everything else so you can travel and everything else. But now the prices are, are have gone through the roof, and and so people are starting to rethink their their summer travel plans. I mean, so you're being squeezed in every direction, and this creates a kind of a sense of of genuine panic uh, on the part of many average people, and especially older people living on pensions and stuff like that. I mean, this is this is a disaster. So this is exactly what Bitcoin was invented for. You know, I'm thinking the downward pressure on prices that we've seen over the last yeah couple of weeks. It's probably a result, and I haven't looked into it too deeply, but what you had happen over the last, say, year or two is a gradual move of big institutions into uh, the crypto space because they saw it as a, as a way to diversify. And uh, they, not that they ever understood it. You know, they, this is the part of the problem of getting involved with the crypto markets where you don't really know what you're doing. Yeah. You just see it as like, oh, here's a thing, a magic thing that is likely to, to uh, go up in value. Well, that's, you know, crypto became on the, you know, entered on the list of, of uh, riskier investments for a lot of these institutions, and uh, which are uh, all yeah. which are moving more into cash. And the reason they're moving into cash is because cash is, cash is losing liquid value faster than, um, uh, not as fast as financials. So, so you've got large institutions, you know, sort of bailing from the sector. Well, that doesn't affect individuals uh, at all. Um, and it shouldn't affect individuals at all. In fact, uh, this is why you've got many people, um, you know, interested now in these, in these bargain prices, because it's, it's really a good time to move in. And if you know what you're doing and you've been involved with what we have, that's what you do. I want to like spend the episode kind of talking about that and talking about how we actually got you first in, into Bitcoin and how I use that conversation as a litmus test over where we are in the general industry and markets. And it's actually a really good way uh, for people to look back knowing like where we are. Um, over the last year or so, the conversation and why people got interested in Bitcoin and crypto. And it's it's definitely like, I'm not blaming anyone. It's definitely my fault, just like it is everyone else's. Is it, So it was about price, right? Like buying this because we want to speculate. We think that the future value of these technologies is so great and it's coming soon. So we want to have a piece of that software that's going to power the future, right? So like everyone got really excited, but few people were asking like, and I was trying to put out, and I've been putting out so much research, uh, but few people were asking like what it is, how it works, why do you need a blockchain? That question went away. And it was always focused on price. The, with you, even though the price was at like $15, it was never an expectation that we're all going to get rich tomorrow. No. You were getting excited about it because you saw Bitcoin as this tool for something that you were preaching. 
Where, yeah. what was this event? And because I found myself a fish out of water at this event in New Hampshire, but what was this? What was this community that existed that you were part of? So, so I had been looking forward to this idea of a digital money for a very long time, but being disappointed because, because every time somebody would try to come up with such a thing, uh, it would fail. Yeah. And, and it was depressing. Uh, and at some point, I just decided that it wasn't going to be possible uh, for various reasons. That uh. uh, You can't make a money out of nothing. You can't just, I can't just write on a piece of paper and call it a tucker and expect people to accept it. And so, uh, you know, I had to, I assumed that it had some pre-existing uh, commodity value to the new digital currency, but e-gold wasn't working. And, you know, I mean, they, they got hacked and, and, and so on. Um, and, you know, and other companies, because other companies would spam the list yeah. and then they get hacked and then there was a, there was a scam and so on. And so I just began to think it just didn't work. And so when Bitcoin came along, you know, I I was I was getting emails as, as uh, early as something like October 2010 from people saying, "Look, you need to take this seriously. They've they've solved the problem that you previously identified, which has to do with um, the centralized point of failure, and 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 the absence of a protocol that restricts its the creation rate." And also the ability to verify uh, the the ownership, uh, verify. I mean, like to tell the truth about about ownership titles. Uh, and and I, you know, I, I that was a little bit too much for me to like yeah. understand. But I remember it was something like before I met you, I read an article. It might have been around the same time in Wired magazine. And Wired is, magazine has always been against crypto, yeah. but they had a passing comment. That pointed out the big, that the quantity of Bitcoin is strictly limited by the protocol, and that set off something in my mind. I was like, "Okay, that is what we're going for. If you want a money, you want a guarantee on the number of units that are going to be created and the rate at which they're going to be created, yes. and, and 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 whether and to what their extent uh, they're they're owned, and and to have security in your ownership titles. Well, this is of course what the blockchain." provided uh, along with a decentralized structure so that you've got you know for lack of a better term a lot of eyeballs on the same on the same ledger and and that changed everything now i was a little bit incredulous yeah. because uh nothing like this had ever existed you know it was it was made possible by the existence of distributed ledgers which we had seen in other in, in well, not distributed letters, but distributed uh, services. Yeah, the idea of like doing Bitcoin with eGold and B Money and Hashcash, it's been around for decades before Bitcoin was invented, but it was yeah. just like you couldn't do it. With Satoshi solved that like mathematical Byzantine generals problem. You guys, your community, this was like the, the Free State Project and the Mises Institute and the Austrian School of Economics and this whole the 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 Ron Paul groups, you know, um, these were you guys knew that this was something you needed to. There needed to be a better system, but it wasn't just about money for you. It was like this is freedom of speech. This is freedom of religion. This is like creating another system that transcends everything else. That's right. It's a meta layer of economics that's independent of the state, which which to say that it's independent of politics. And and uh, the machinations of the regulatory state and 
and the and the, the ideological fanatics that are trying to run our life. Here's something that that really made borders go away and made restrictions go away. And so long as you're the the owner and controller of those assets, uh, there's nobody who can censor you. So that that was an exactly. extraordinary thing, you know. That was what. That was an extraordinary moment when I realized this because uh, you want all these properties in a money. And here's the thing about Bitcoin, because traditionally money has certain properties about it, right? This was its fungibility and there's uniformity of quality. There's high value per unit of weight. Uh, there's a durability so that it doesn't, you know, go away and, and so on. It's, you know, a highly valued commodity. Uh, but but Bitcoin came along as a technology and added several other features to it that actually makes it better than than even the gold standard because it made um, uh, geography uh, disappear. So you can have geographically uh, non-contiguous um, uh, transfer, transfers. So so that's that's why I really fell in love with it, and I realized that you you did too that day was that. What we're talking about is it remove like not just physical demarcations like between countries, but it, for the first time, and I grew up in like such a very religious community, but demarcations between people, like mm-hmm. what made us different, mm-hmm. the mobility from from the mobility that we could have as an individual, whether you're black or white or or, or 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 anything any anything that 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 makes you different whatever your religion or or anything where you're from how you what you were born into money or not money all these like movability within classes because again I was someone who wanted to move about a different class I was someone who wanted to be able to have financial independence but leave my community these demarcations were being broken down it stopped being enforced by law. It was now enforced by code. And the people that use the system, Bitcoiners and crypto people, we all agree in the code. We all agree in the math. And we all agree that these demarcations are now going to be enforced by code. And we're not going to have to have governments or society enforce this. And it's so saddening that now I turn on the radio and all we're doing is talking about more laws that governments want to control us. And it sucks because we were we're we're going backwards. Oh, for sure. I mean, like who's vaccinated, who's not, you know, or and and those grim days of, of the first part of the lockdowns, you couldn't even travel from Connecticut to to uh, to Massachusetts without a mandatory. Oh, my God. You know, and, yeah, my and, friend and driving. Also, from, yeah, that, that, I'm so glad you're talking about you're talking about basic principles of democracy and equality and social mobility. And 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 that is the opposite of everything that's gone on for the last two years, uh, because uh, and you see it in the in the way the uh, COVID infections have have affected people. First of all, oh, yeah. you had the the ruling class hiding out in uh, in their apartments uh, while pushing the working class out, and the, the nurses and the food delivery people and the grocery store workers and you know uh, to to face the virus bravely, and then. <laughs> and then, now that and you then, say it like that, yeah, I feel every DoorDash guy was a first responder. You're right. Oh, absolutely. And then over time, it just gradually unfolded more and more. Some people came back to the office, got COVID, and then, and then uh, finally, uh, you know, it took a long time, a year and a half, but finally, in November, December of 2021, 
uh, we started seeing like average reporters of the New York Times, you know, starting to get COVID. And suddenly, they, you know, the Washington Post was running articles like there's no shame in getting COVID. And then and then uh, and then the very the very last and, and then at the White House Correspondents Dinner, you finally had another wave of infection. And, and by the way, with infection recovery comes robust immunity. We know this. But uh, and then finally, at the very last end, you've got that I've seen over the last couple of days. Some of the uh, preachy lockdown epidemiologists have finally gotten COVID. So it took them two years. But you're right. This whole thing has been very much about class and an economic means and social stratification and the creation of a new caste system. That is not what markets and freedom are supposed to be about. You're supposed to be able to free, be free to choose and free to advance and, and work with technologies that are not that are not primarily dictated by uh, what regulators and, and governments telling you to do. That's the essence of freedom, which is why so many people who love freedom initially got interested in Bitcoin. We now know COVID. We now know that like COVID existed in waves and well, we, we don't know anything about COVID. And I don't want to talk, spend another episode talking about COVID. I want to I want to talk more about like the reactions. What's war game a little bit? What what would have happened if things were different? in April of 2020. What, what would have happened if we did do lockdowns the first month, which were important just to see how things would play out? But what if there was no stimulus? What if uh, the economy was allowed to like kind of rebound on its own or go into a recession? Like, like what would have been government intervention in your eyes or if any? Yeah, I don't think I don't think there should have been any uh, government intervention at, at all, really. I, it, what you want to do in the case of a virus like this is to figure out who's vulnerable and to urge that people uh, shield themselves while herd immunity, herd immunity develops within the within your community until it's safe to go out. And then you go out and then that's that's about it. And that's all that needed to happen. Instead, we quarantined the well and the sick and uses, as you said initially, as a big excuse for expanding uh, government spending, money creation, yeah, exactly. control over people's lives. And now we're facing with this, you know, this, this catastrophic uh, mess, all the supply chain problems we're facing right now all over the world to the, you know, to the point that, you know, there's like basic things like uh, manufacturing trucks, large scale trucks, that's we're at very, very baby formula. Yeah, baby formulas. We got shortages in everything. Uh, rental uh, uh, units, available rental units, are down to 1984 levels right now. I was looking at them this this morning. They're like we're like eight 8.5. I went to my printer broke. I went to Best Buy yesterday to get a new printer, uh, and I walked down the printer aisle, and there's like 15 different printer models I can choose from. And I'm going through, and the guy walks up to me. He goes. Don't even bother. We have one in stock. We have like one you can choose from. One. I said, "What is this? The Soviet wow. Union? I won in Best Buy, and I'm looking around. Huge store. There's this huge store. And I'm like, I'm like, what is here? Why am I even here? Like, what do you have? I can't choose. I bought what they had. It's right there. It's like I bought the only printer they had, and it's like, wow. and again, I don't want to like spend our time." like talking about things that people already know and continue to see in our, in our daily lives. I want to ask you like, what, I guess, like what could people be doing to, to be able to maintain their freedoms, their liberties? Uh, what, what, who could they trust? I mean, it's really a tough question. 
Uh, yeah. Well, yeah, this is a tough question because you can't trust. Um... <laughs> I was thinking about this. Trust but verify. Yeah. Yeah. When I was thinking about this the other day, I was like, who have we lost trust in? We've lost trust in public health officials. I mean, obviously. We've we've lost trust in and uh, party politics, obviously. Uh, we've we've lost trust in uh, the Federal Reserve, you know, and the Treasury Department and the presidential spokesman, and basically, uh, just I mean, like everything. I mean, who trusts the media anymore, you know? And and so we've we've lost trust in in vast number of our institutions. Um, and uh, it's it's and you, you can't can you really trust the banks anymore? You know, can you trust uh, can you trust your smartphone anymore? Can you trust uh, the software manufacturers? We can't trust banks, and it's like people use no. It's so funny how like all these neo banks that everyone's using, like Chime and everything, and then Venmo and Cash App that oh, I'm going to keep it under $600 so the government doesn't know I'm not using my bank. I'm like, guys, it's all owned by the same companies. All these companies are owned by the same companies that are reporting the same thing to all the time. And it's not that that that's a bad thing. My point was that like, you're, you're talking about like, oh, we're using these new financial institutions. It's they're the same ones that you were using before. And you're right. We lost all trust in all these institutions. And it's a shame oh, it's because so, it's, I have too. I mean, I, it's funny for me because I used to think, you know, that I've written books about celebrating technology and technology companies and oh, is it LinkedIn great? And, you know, yeah. and, so on and, so on. and, and to learn gradually that, that our, that our smartphones that we've put so much of our lives into have become a sources of spying on us. I mean, we, there was a report that came out you know, last week or something like that, that the CDC was scarfing up all the data that was, you know, uh, available on the market. I don't doubt it. And I have a great, I have, so I have this business card. It's a joke. So I, I have this business card and it's like, uh, there's no number or email address even needed because I tell people just Google me or unlock your phone and say my name. My ads will find you. Like if you say Alexa, Charlie Shrem, all of a sudden now I just did it to everyone. Now everyone, all my ads are going to find you. You listen to the show because that's how it works. So if you, if you have your phone unlocked, it's listening. And I'm not just yeah. making this up. My friends at Facebook and Apple tell me so. It's listening. Mm -hmm. And that data is being in real time, parsed and sold to every government database and every so ministry of problem. truth. problem. I mean, it's, it's amazing because we don't any longer have any separation between private enterprise and government. Like you say... Uh, government is a huge market for a lot of these companies. And so they, they get large enough databases and they're going to be selling to, to the highest bidder, which happens to be government in many, uh, many cases. And that's, that's a terrifying prospect. You, do you remember uh, early on when lockdowns came along, um, Apple immediately, and I like, I like Apple a lot. Yeah. I trust them more than most companies, but uh, but they deployed. It was a Google creation, actually, that Apple bought for its own for its own iOS, which was a um, a COVID tracking software. And so the idea, <laughs> oh my god, I so remember, idea, yeah, yeah, is that when you'd go to get a COVID test, you know, from the government, uh, then it would be immediately registered as 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 positive. 
with your uh, health agency who would then uh, uh, text your, 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 your phone at your phone because you have a phone number. Uh, text your phone, say download the software so that so that oh, you, yeah. can, you can register yourself as having had COVID. And then, uh, you know, you might be going about your business or whatever. And if anybody else had that software, like you're worried about getting COVID, so you down, you know, you, so you turn that software on, you just turn it on. You don't have to do anything. I have to register anything, just turn it on. And then uh, next thing you know, uh, you know, you're walking into a room and everybody's phones go off. There's a COVID guy here. And then everybody runs, runs from the room. And th- this is how you control this. Is, you're going to control the spread of a virus this way. By yeah. putting le- leper bells on everybody. It's such bullshit. It's such <laughs> bullshit. Like I was, we were shooting a movie and you have to, this is the worst part. You have to still, you have to still get a negative test to come into the U S vaccinated yeah. or not. You could be an American. So I'm overseas shooting a movie with, with other Americans and we're hanging out. And one of my friends, the day before the flight gets his, his test, and he's the only negative out of like 50, he's the only positive out of like 50 people. He wasn't sick. It ended up being a false positive, but you should see what a pariah he became. He couldn't come to the rap party of a movie that he was shooting, right? He couldn't leave his hotel room. Everyone pulled away from him socially. Like he was talking to another girl, maybe. She stopped talking to him, texting. What are you gonna get COVID over text? We allow the government to control us in the most deepest thoughts and our deepest, most personal, intimate societal relationships. We got the government involved and they are involved. We let them tell us who we could be friends with. And, and let me tell you something. We haven't even talked about the effect of like mental illness in the world today. That's the real illness that it's going to come out of COVID. People oh. are waking up with their blood pressures through the roof morning, noon, and night. Oh, I felt myself right now. Yeah. I felt it for two years. And when the, when the, when the, when the darkness fell in March, 2020, I just, I I just, I became super sad. Uh, But there was a a report in the New York times yesterday. uh, It turns out that a huge numbers of wings, a whole wings of hospitals, uh, emergency room and ICU uh, wings and, and lots of residential wings of hospitals are filled with teenagers that have uh, come in with various self-inflicted inju- inju- uh, injuries. And they're, they, they don't feel good about letting them go home because they'll do it again. So the safest place for them is now uh, in the hospital. So you've got, you've got teenagers basically living at the hospitals to keep from hurting themselves. And we've never seen uh, capacity this high in our nation's hospitals with just t- teenagers living there uh, for because of their parents and their doctors' fears that they're going to basically kill themselves. So this this was in the New York Times just two days ago. I mean, this is this is a I mean, this is not just an economic catastrophe. It's a cultural and social uh, catastrophe. We've never seen anything like this. So here we are. It's 2022. Maybe we need to. Do we need to start talking about defining what a perfect government should actually be what type of like this is a very fair question i ask people this all the time like what would you think needed to be included in some bare bones government and i've been talking to like aaron koenig we had and you had like the free cities movement or private cities have you heard of this movement Mm -hmm. yeah yeah free private cities yeah i I agree you know i mean you know charlie um 
you know, there's part of me that's just temperamentally and intellectually uh, an, an anarchist, you know, for, for whatever, whatever that means. Um, but at the same time, I'm also kind of romantically attached to a kind of a 19th century uh, ideal in which we, we, we put very strict limits on what government, you know, can and cannot do uh, using constitutions, traditions, courts, uh, law, like, okay, you can do this, but you can't do that. Uh, uh, and, and this worked for a very long time in, in our history. And then it just kind of gradually got unraveled. And I'll give you an example of this uh, since we're talking about infectious disease. In the 19th century, the, 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 the uh, Great Britain in 1870 considered a series of what they called the Infectious Disease Acts mm. in which they wanted to. So the problem was that lords and members of parliament and everything else were visiting houses of prostitutions, picking up disease and giving them to the uh, to the, to the member, members of the aristocracy. And so parliament wanted to pass a bill to allow uh, the police to go into brothels and, and impose universal testing. And then if anybody turned out to be positive for whatever kind of wow. STD, uh, then they would put them in quarantine. So the question is like, what do we think about that? And there is this great guy named John Stuart Mill who wrote this wonderful book called On Liberty. And he was just a great old fashioned liberal. He said, this is wrong. This is an invasion of people's privacy. Uh, first of all, to have you know universal testing by profession. Sure. That's, that's contrary to free society. And he said, it's also wrong to quarantine people if, if, um, if they turn out positive because it is not a crime to be sick. So, you know, the liability is on the person visiting the brothel, you know, to, to take that risk upon himself. And, and that literally no crime is being, being committed here. Well, because of his arguments, these infectious disease acts actually went, went down to defeat. And I think that that's the right way to think about it because it's too dangerous otherwise. It's too dangerous for liberty to give government these, these kinds of powers. They shouldn't be allowed to do it. And we have lived through two years and we see what happens when we give, we give an inch, they take you know 10 miles every single time. Will we go back to this like world where we were starting to become globalized? Like, don't you remember, like we stopped asking where people were from and, and like citizenship stopped mattering as much. Like who cares what passport you had? And it was like, just felt like there was a good 10 years. Incredible. The the COVID response unleashed nationalism. I I know. Yes. I hate it. Yeah. I know exactly what you're saying that, that it was only like maybe three, five years ago where there was a conviction that we lived in a, a sort of a global community and that uh, trade was robust and that you could fly anywhere and do anything. But with all the travel restrictions, the lockdowns, there was, suddenly you had this nationalism come along and we had to decouple from China. Okay. And then, uh, and, and then you started having all the policies arranged by, by states and nations, even vaccines, you know, like, yeah. There, there's a lot, you know, every country has its own, you know, brand of vaccine, you know, so it's been a big thing for the, for the reassertion of the nation state over human liberty, that world that, that you and I had come to love so much where the individual really mattered and we had choice. And yeah. We think of ourselves as citizens of the world, you know, uh, those are the good days. And, but wow, it's going to be, we're, we're, if we're going to get that back, it's going to take a lot of effort. And I'm not, I'm not even sure. I mean, I feel like, I feel like almost we've been set back so many years, decades, maybe centuries in, in progress here. 
it's it's going to be it's going to take a I don't know like a, an intellectual cultural revolution to to get back what we've lost. I hope it happens fast. I'm afraid it's not going to. Did you ever even imagine that we would stay in this state of uh, disease frenzy for two years? I figured I, it would last a couple of weeks and go away. I thought it was going to last thirty days and go away. I I I, I honestly thought it would. I thought the government's responses would be like pandemic, but then endemic, you know, like, like very quickly to me. And this is where priorities lie. And this is when it comes to like big government, people don't realize it's like, it's not that there's this big, bad wolf is that your priorities as an individual is very different than the priorities of the state. So it's like, to me, COVID day one, my first thought is, okay, how do you solve it? We all thought that, right? Like, how do we solve this problem? We're in lockdown day one. COVID's going to sweep the world. Right now, it's only in China and a few other places. What do we do? So I'm thinking in my head, wow, if I had like an unlimited budget, what I would do is just make like tests just unlimitedly widely and freely available, like private tests, like the, the what we have now. You can go to CVS, yeah. Uber Eats for 20 bucks, get two tests anywhere right now. If I was sick, I can go get one and I know whether to leave my house or not. To me- right. That seemed like the perfect answer. I didn't even, I wasn't thinking vaccines. I was just like, now I'm not a, a Dr. Fauci or anything like that, but I just want to know like, were other people thinking, hey, that would be like the immediate 30 day solution. And they very quickly had the ability to do testing, but it seemed like testing needed to be done like by states, have a state registry. And then like everyone knows you're sick and then there's an app and then you, you're a pariah. It didn't need to be that. But Charlie, you, you got to th thank you for mentioning this. This is what I call the, the epistemological problem. We wanted to know. As soon as we found out there was a virus, we wanted to know if we had it. I mean, that's a good question. But what happened was uh, the CDC uh, immediately announced that there will be no tests coming from any private labs in the United States. None. Abolished it. They said, we'll take care of all testing. So yeah. their first round of testing came in, in I think, uh, quasi like third, third or fourth week of March. And they began to distribute it because they, they were screwed up. They were not, they were, they were messed up tests. They weren't accurate and they were, they were bad tests. Yeah. And, and they didn't know what to do. So they withdrew them from the markets. Over the course of, of April was when several private labs uh, got in the business of fixing the tests and making them the, actually uh, work more or less. And, but they had to defy the central government in order to do this. I forget the woman's name at a, at a health clinic in Seattle, but she was the first one to discover what was wrong with the test and how to fix it. So it still took another month or two before we had wide distribution of tests. And even then, as you said, it wasn't at the CVS or the Walgreens. That would take yeah. another year or year and a half, it was only through these official government agencies, which makes you really suspicious, you know? Um, this is the answer. We are yeah. living in a world where the only time the government will let something be private is if individual senators, congressmen, congresswomen have a stake in it. That's why it took so long. The governments needed the time, they needed the time to call up their money managers and take stakes in Abbott Labs and Pfizer and all these companies. That's what it is. It comes down to us as individuals. What we want is, and our priorities are different than that of the government. And it, it's just, it's just, it comes down to that. And I hate to say it because I remember my friend in China 
was trying to send me like boxes of tests like that. I was out first lockdown. It was during the Florida lockdown and Florida only had 30 days of lockdown. So it was April, 2020. And my friend sent me like all these tests and the customs in Miami wouldn't let them through. I had tests. I wanted to just start testing people. I wanted to create like a private world around me of people that I knew were tested because we wouldn't get sick. The government wouldn't let them in. They wouldn't let the tests yeah. in. There were yeah. no private tests. It was impossible. You couldn't That's even right. get, remember, you couldn't get a test unless you were showing symptoms for a fucking year. How stupid is that? Yeah. How dumb yeah. is that? Yeah. And then, and then it was a long wait. Uh, but even after the private test came along, they had to be approved by the government. Then they were never really advertised because they wanted to track yeah. uh, the disease. They wanted you in the official clinics. And uh, it just became utterly pre uh, preposterous. And, and that it was the absence of testing. My memory is that it was the absence of testing, readily accessible tests. Yeah. That was totally inexcusable. That's what stirred public panic. Because people didn't know. They didn't know. They heard there was a terrifying disease out there. They didn't know if they had it. So that's a basic question you have to ask. So that was a massive failing. I mean, was it deliberate? I mean, some people say so. I don't really know. I just assume the government just screws everything up. But they certainly screwed up the testing in the early days. And I'm not sure there was any coming back after that. Because then people already whipped themselves up into a frenzy. You saw personally what was going on from a from an ec, from economist uh, sociology point of view and you right. founded the brownstone institute right what is going on there and are there solutions do the solutions come from the local government level the individual level the individual group level what do we do yeah it's all of the above i mean okay. it turns out charlie and we didn't entirely know this but in the his, in, in 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 the history of human experience uh, disease panics are very often the reason how it is that despots take over and get rid of uh, people's liberties. Really? This, this is how societies are segregated uh, quite often. You have whole social systems based on uh, on this on this view of, of caste, the clean and the unclean. Look at AIDS. Look at AIDS. Look what it created. It created yeah. AIDS created a whole culture of like second class citizens. There was that famous commercial of, I think it was... Uh, was it Magic Johnson who had who had HIV? He was HIV positive, and he was telling this little girl, and all she was saying was she was saying, "I just want my friends to hang out with me." The six-year-old girl, I just want my yeah. friends to hang out with me, or whatever. Oh, Magic really Johnson tragic. was like, "I'll be your friend." I hope yeah. it was. I hope I'm not butchering. It was Magic Johnson. Yeah, I think it was. Um, but you can see it even in 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 biblical times. You know, this is so this sad. is how social social outcasts. I mean, people that were, you were never allowed into the temple if you were sick. So what would happen was if, if there was some uh, maverick, uh, a, a person that nobody liked and people didn't want him in the temple, they would just simply start the rumor that he had leprosy, you know? And, and then it was like, now he had to find a rabbi somewhere yeah. to declare him clean. And that's where Jesus, you know, kind of came along. It was like, okay, you're clean, all right? Go to the, go to the so I remember learning about leprosy as a child in, in, in yeah. Jewish school and like understanding that leprosy was like this, okay, it was like a physical disease that you'd get if you were a bad person and you didn't, you didn't pray to God and stuff like that. And you didn't right. follow the rules. It's like, okay, like, okay, I kind of get that. Like maybe 
there's this like disease you can get if you don't believe in God. But then I'm like, but then it became this disease that you couldn't actually physically see. So it's like, yeah. wait a minute. So there's this like authority that's going to tell me I'm sick now. That's right. And also the sickness lasts and lasts and lasts. And yeah. And, <laughs> and so there's this funny scene, you know, uh, in, in the New Testament where, where, where there's a dinner party and this guy shows up uh, and, and he introduces himself as Ly- Simon. And he says, you probably know me better as Simon the leper. Like, I don't ever remember having this, but everybody. I think I'm going to change my Simon. name to Charlie everybody the Leper. calls me Simon the Leper. Yeah, you're Charlie the Leper. So, so, so he finally, finally gets himself to be, uh, to be declared clean. And, you know, that, that's about it. But this, this goes way back. We use infectious disease as a way of excluding people uh, that we don't like. And, you know, the Middle Ages. It's very common, you know, uh, actually, even in the late 19th century America to associate minority populations with uh, d- with disease spread, you know? Yeah. And leprosy ended up being just, they figured out it was just like this bacterial infection that that's people right, got right. based on certain environments and it's totally curable. Yeah, that's right. And, and, <laughs> and there are such things as historians of like what you call like immunological anthropologists or something who have, have found out that there was no such thing as leprosy in that region of the world at that time. So you're exactly right. <laughs> this shit goes, the stuff goes way back and you're right about AIDS, but you know, um, uh, we we saw it in um, in 2005 during the Bush administration. I don't know if you remember this, but there was a big uh, fear of the avian bird flu, and and Bush got on television and said, "Look, if this bird flu, you know, it's going to jump to human beings, and we're all going to have to lock down. We're going to have to, you know, the government will take care of all your grocery deliveries, and we're going to quarantine everybody." It was shocking, and I was writing about this stuff back then. I thought, if you ever do this, you will create a a catastrophe. Now, now at the time, people like uh, Anthony Fauci were warning that half of humanity could die oh, yeah. uh, from the avian bird flu. Uh, well, it turns out it never jumped from birds to humans. I mean, the birds felt a little, uh, a little. Uh, I remember. I never knew what ended up happening with that. No, it was just the birds got you know a little bit of a headache and some sniffles and had to do a little bed rest for a while. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but otherwise it never jumped to humans. So that one kind of came and went. But I thought at the time, I thought these bastards, <clears throat> you know, they can't figure out any other way to control us because we've got now the, you know, a growing digital age. Uh, you know, they're losing control of society and the system. Uh, the world's becoming globalist. Uh, people true. are losing interest and, and concerned about their nation states and loyalty to their political systems. What if they deploy infectious disease as a way of scaring everybody to going back in time? And that's sure enough, it took them 15 years, but they finally found out, you know, found a good excuse to do it. And that's exactly what they did. Where do you so we need, to, we need to rally around technologies that get back that. So, you know, what's interesting about you, Charlie, and I'm not sure that people understand this about you. You're just... I would characterize you as an all-around, just brilliant guy. Thank right? you. You don't, you don't have, you know, a deeply embedded ideological agenda. You know, you're not, you're not particularly political. Uh, even when I met you, um, I know I try to be political more, but I just can't seem to to, to you're do not it. Good at it. <laughs> and when I when I met you the first time, you're like, look, I'm just curious about this thing as a technology. I was just like, what what the hell is this? You know, that was basically your outlook. And I was telling you, don't you see? This is going to be the key to giving us our freedoms back. You're like, well, you know, I'm not against that. That's why. <laughs> I just I just kind of 
grew up in a in a very happy world, but yeah. I was unhappy. And mm. technology, and I didn't know I was unhappy. I just thought this is the world that you have to live because you grew up, you know, and I'm probably this resonates with so many people around the world, whatever age they are, maybe they're still unhappy, maybe whatever. And I personally saw technology and technology for me was a way to get to happiness, was a way. And 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 that was because technology removed those like demarcations. It removed the mm -hmm. like, who is Charlie? What is Charlie? How is Charlie? Why is Charlie? What is behind Charlie? All these different things seated to be asked. And like the first impression was based on like what type of value that me, Charlie, can bring to the social group that I'm in. Yeah, and I and like you that. A, you had a real insight uh, because in those days, you know, Bitcoin is still pretty darn edgy. Not many people, people were interested in it, but there weren't many, uh, I would call them like Bitcoin practitioners out there. And you were kind of one of the first and you seized on it because I don't know, you had an insight that this was a neglected, that this is really innovative, really interesting, and generally neglected. And you wanted to be, you know, the first guy out there. And you were. And um, and it took, you know, another, another uh, eight years before the rest of the world really caught up to you. And yeah. it's, it's fascinating to watch your own progress in this, in, in, in this sort of unfolding drama, because I swear, I remember those days as, it's like it was yesterday. You yeah, know, never forget. Late, uh, late at night, sitting and in a little cramped corner of a of a bar, you know, eating cheesecakes and drinking, you know, Negroni. Know, Negronis. We were drinking Negronis. That's right. And just just hammering all this stuff out because we all had a sense of a, a dawning of a new world. I mean, for me, it was all about that conference. Was the the biggest? It was the Nashua, New Hampshire. It was the Free State Project. Putting yeah, on there the Liberty Forum, Liberty Forum. Yeah, but I had a I I was so excited because I had always been under the conviction that money should be private, it should be privately controlled. So and and it usually has been in history until the government takes it over. That's always what happens. The private sector invents a cool money. The government says, "Oh, we like that. Let we'll we'll take it. We'll manage that for you." Right. And so now, for the first time in the modern age. Uh, we had a real invention of, of, of a, a potentially fully private, uh, uncensorable uh, the currency that the government couldn't get its mitts on, at least not directly. And so that to me was, wow, one of the great moments of my life for you. I think you were just intrigued at, at the, the combination of factors that made it work. You know, the uh, uh, double key cryptography, the, the distributed... Uh, networks, the, 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 the but also the community, the, the community yeah. behind it was everything still is to yeah. all these different, it's all the community because if we're, if we're not doing it for people, then who are we doing it for? Yeah. Yeah. That is so true. And you guys were really nice to me because I was a little bit, uh, and by the way, I'd had many people try to sort of, sort of pull me aside and, and, and get me more excited about Bitcoin than I really was. And, and, and so you guys finally succeeded, you know, I think it began at lunch <laughs> and, but it was that, that moment of becoming a, an owner um, where I just felt my heart race and I felt like this new world was dawning. And I think you did too. I think yeah. what we did not understand, I think, I think I can speak for you in the sense 
is that it would be much harder to get from here to there than we knew. You know, we didn't know there would be so many interruptions. On yeah. The way. And there were, have, have been so many, most you know, of them all external. And I think about this a lot. And I think to some extent, I think to some extent there was like this wanting for Bitcoin as much as we wanted it to grow and the rest of the world to know about it, especially the early people, there was this wanting for it to not extend beyond our own social community. Or we wanted to like almost be able to like bring in the people like yourself that would really get it and understand it and not make it about like price and speculation and getting rich. And, right. and, we, and that was lost, but that's why that early community was filled with people like us who really understood like the why and and like the problems that led up to why Bitcoin was invented and how why the whole crypto community exists today. You know, honestly, I got to tell you that when I first started writing about this topic, you know, I was maybe mildly interested in whether and to what extent it would go up in price, but that wasn't the, the driving factor at all. So I was shocked when you know, things would happen like, I don't know, would bump up to uh, $120 and then fall again to $60 that that people were writing me and accusing me of, of engaged in a sure. And And I would be like, I'm, I'm not that influential. I'm not that smart. <laughs> and that's not my primary concern, you know? It was just so funny that people thought I had a financial interest. By the way, this has been going on in my life for the better part of 10 years. That, that people have assumed that everything I write and everything I do is secretly about, about making billions in Bitcoin. <laughs> it's just ridiculous. Yeah, but it, that's what happens if you, if you start to say things that people don't like, they're going to accuse your motivations. Oh, I know. I that's know. just how it, was, it is. For me, it's been, for me, it's been basically, I would say, like an intellectual thing. And it's about serving the world through explanation and writing and inspiration about hoping that we can somehow build and secure a world of universal rights and freedom, the kind of world that you dreamt of when you were a, yeah. a young man and, and hope to live now. And we're still trying to get there. And that's, by the way, why I started the Brownstone Institute, because I wanted something that, that, <clears throat> that was very much focused on this integration of, of sure. aspiration of human freedom together with dealing very uh, precisely and technologically and even scientifically with all the excuses why we don't, why we can't get there. And one of them is infectious disease, but there's, there's so many others. And so for me, Brownstone has been a chance to bring in a lot, of, bring a lot of scientists, a lot of interdisciplinary thinkers together to address this major problem of how do we, how do we build and secure a world of, of universal rights and and freedoms for everybody, despite the attempt by so many interest groups out there to take it away from us. And I don't, I don't know if, you know, I, th I think Brownstone has done a lot of good. And we have like 50 million readers, which I'm really grateful of. But um, I don't, you know, I don't know if that's the answer. But if it's not the answer, I don't, you know, I don't know what is. In other words, I think the worst thing we can do right now is give up and just go, oh, who cares? You know, that would just guarantee failure. I mean, you need voices out there. Yeah. Speaking. I'll keep doing this show and you'll keep yeah. writing. How can how can my folks, my listeners follow your writing and, and find well, you? Well, I mean, I, I hope you can go to uh, to, to brownstone.org. Um, and by the way, 
right. it's extremely difficult for nonprofits to accept uh, cryptocurrency, but there are a few companies out there. This one's associated with Gemini, you know? Uh, so we do uh, accept crypto donations and they're fully tax deductible, which is amazing. It took like two months of applications and 90 pages of paperwork, but we finally got there. Um, and I would love it if people would subscribe to the emails. And the, I mean, I'm not a fan of email, but these days to be able to, to have your own and control your own email list is, is the only sure way that you can get to people when, when everything else is being censored. I would love to see like a periodical from the Brownstone Institute, like a maybe a like a quarterly printed magazine or something of like the best writings or something like peer reviewed. It's a great idea, and we're probably going to get there. You know, it's interesting yeah. because I only released this thing in October first, and like I said, we have fifty million pages in the meantime. Um, but you know, I immediately had to. I mean, my first obligations were to save several souls out of academia who were being purged, okay? So that was like a moral obligation as far as I was concerned. I mean, that's what, I had to use the place as a sanctuary for several individuals who were being purged from academia. So that was my first job. And then I put out a great book by Gigi Foster and, and others on, on the history of this uh, disease panic. It's still the best book out there. And, and now I'm holding a series of private meetings, uh, hoping to uh, cobble together a template for uh, future investigations over what happened so we can get the truth out at least. And, and so I'm taking it one step at a time, and then next will be printed public publications, and I'm going to get a nice headquarters and so on. So, so I'm hoping to build this. You know, that's the thing, Charlie. We need, we've needed them always. We needed we need sanctuaries we do. in times of crisis. And, you know, you think about something like the Geneva Institute for Graduate Studies in Switzerland and the interwar years. I mean, they saved so many Jewish intellectuals from Vienna who imagined that they would stay in Vienna, you know, had been there for generations and thought they would stay there forever. And next thing you know, they had to leave. Okay, they didn't want that, but you have to have a place to go. Whenever governments feel threatened and despots and dictators take over, the first thing they do is go for the intellectuals. Why isn't that true? And, and intellectuals have to have a place to, uh, to hide. Exactly. But what, and so what did Bitcoin, safe. what did Bitcoin and distributed ledger technology gave you is it gave you that digital sanctuary to not only fund your work, but also have a place that could be maintained if it got worse and censorship went to like like, in, people don't realize, with the flick of a switch, the government can basically say to Amazon Web Services, which basically hosts, like, the whole world, yep. like, you can't have this type of data that stored there. Boom. Like, censorship is a flip of a switch away. It's yeah, so Yeah, and by the time you realize bad. it's happening, it's already too late. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's why, by the way, we don't use Amazon Web Services. I'm on an independent hosting company that I'm not even going to tell you the name of it. Um, and, and the other thing is that we don't even use, I'm, I'm scared of these companies. We don't even use Google analytics because what Google analytics does is yeah. you're sharing their, your data with, with Google in exchange for, they give you a pretty interface, but then they have the data <laughs> and then they can sell the data, which means that the users of your website are basically being, having yeah. their, their brain power pillaged by a company that's actually oppressing you. So I'm not going to do that. So I don't use any of those uh, things. I use uh, third-party open-source uh, software where where there's no big tech tracking anybody's use. This is a matter for me of 
of principle. I'm also staying off of things like um, where I'm decentralizing our content. So I use Rumble and Odyssey and everything else. And, and, and you know, we have 15 different social media uh, venues to stay out there. I'm doing everything possible to decentralize the distribution of our content to prepare in case, which could happen tonight or this afternoon, that for a big attack on Brownstone, suddenly we're unplugged. We, we cannot live like this. This is, not, this is not the world we want to live in. You don't want to have a body bag thrown over yourself or your institution and suddenly found that you've been made not to exist. You know, that we need to prepare for that. All of us. If you're building a business, you've got to build it this way. You've got to prepare. Wow. Yeah, you do have to prepare. Well, Jeff, Jeff, thank you so much for taking the time and, and coming on Untold Stories today. I really appreciate it. Hey, Charlie, it's great to get caught up. We should do it more often. It's all the best to you. <laughs>